Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we come to the end of another calendar year. I hope that 2017 has been a good one for you. And I hope that your 2018 will be even better. It's certainly been a good year for Super 70 Sports. Our audience has continued to grow, and I'm so grateful to you guys for continuing to make it possible. Before we get started with today's guest, I'd like to ask you guys one small favor. If you enjoy this podcast, if you're a regular listener, if you could take a few seconds and head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review, it would mean a lot to me. You know, not everybody is on Twitter And I'd like to expand our reach outside of the Twitter community as much as possible. And folks uh, seeing us and knowing about our presence on iTunes would really help in that area. So if you could help me get the word out by giving us a five-star review on iTunes, I would consider that a really nice solid. So let's get to business. As I tape this, it is New Year's Eve, and it just so happens that it was 50 years ago today that the Green Bay Packers met the Dallas Cowboys on the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field in the Ice Bowl, the NFL Championship game of 1967. As most of you probably know, the game was played in minus 15 conditions. The wind chill, at least as they measured it in 1967, was minus 48. And it's hard to imagine what it would be like playing in those conditions. You know, it was one degree here in Chicago last night, And I was such a big puss about it that I didn't even want to go to the grocery store. So what must it have been like trying to actually play championship football in those kinds of conditions? Well, it just so happens that we're in luck. Because my guest today started the ice bowl at middle linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, a member of the 1961 national champion Alabama Crimson Tide, a member of the Super Bowl VI champion Dallas Cowboys. You'll also find him in the Cowboys Ring of Honor and the College Football Hall of Fame, Leroy Jordan. Leroy, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be on with you guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And the first thing I have to do is to tell you how much I've enjoyed reading your your new autobiography. Uh, the, The book is called Leroy, My Story of Faith, Family, and Football. And it's just a terrific read. Uh, and, and I got to ask, uh, what inspired you to, to finally put uh, pen to paper and, and tell your life story? Well, I, I've got uh, young grandchildren, and, uh, you know, I'm getting to the age I said, God, Lee, uh, when they get to be 18, 20 years old and kind of trying to figure out what their grandfather was like, uh, I need to put something on paper and you know, tell the full circle of what my life has been about. It's a terrific book, and you've got a lot of stories to tell, obviously, because your <laughs> your career is intersected with a lot of really interesting things, which is one of the reasons that I've really been looking forward to, to talking to you today. I, I guess we'll start out with uh, when you were a kid. I mean, you're, you're an Alabama kid, and as we all know, Bear Bryant is a, a legend bigger than life, uh, especially in Alabama, but in football uh, in general. And, of course, you, you played for him at Alabama, and you were on his first 
national championship team there at Alabama. Uh, what's it like for an Alabama kid to grow up and then be a star player for the Crimson Tide? That's kind of got to be the ultimate for, for any uh, boy growing up in Alabama that loves football, I would think. Well, it, it was a great thrill for me, and uh, Coach Bryan had just uh, uh, come to Alabama the year before I uh, was uh, selected to come there, and uh, uh, gosh, Lee, he brought a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of hard work, and uh, a lot of winning ways with him, and so it was a great uh, thrill for me to be a part of his uh championship run there at the University of Alabama. We uh, were on the first championship uh, for him to win at Alabama. The first of six. And in that team in 1961, now I didn't realize until I was doing my, my proper research here to talk to you, how dominant that team was, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. Now, for my listeners here, I want to say 11 and 0, and you guys gave up 25 points all season. Yeah, exactly right. And we had five shutouts that the uh, team didn't score a point on us. Nobody ever scored more than seven points against the 1961 Alabama team. What? What is that experience like? Because that really, that's unheard of today. I mean, I don't think you'll ever see anything like that happen again. What was it like being a part of a team that was just that much better than everybody else? Well, it was a thrilling time for us to, and, and Coach Bryant, when we'd gotten there as freshmen, uh, uh, told us we could win the championship if we worked hard enough and uh, played hard enough. He thought we had the talent to do it, and he was great at judging his talent, too. You guys certainly came back strong again in 1962. Now, you didn't win the national title that year. You you won the Sugar Bowl in 61, but you guys went to the Orange Bowl in 62, and that one is memorable for for a few different reasons. One, you guys won the Orange Bowl, but you got to call the coin flip before that game with somebody that, I don't know, is kind of famous. Right. Yeah. Tell me about the circumstances of that because that was a that's a pretty crazy experience just from the circumstances of where the coin flip happened and yeah. who and who the coin flipper was. Yeah. the uh, The coin flipper was President John Kennedy, uh, and he was supporting the Oklahoma team. Uh, you know, because Bud Wilkinson had been his uh, athletic uh, captain of the the team or whatever title it was back then so he, he was uh he was supporting uh, uh coach Whistler and the uh, oklahoma team and coach Bryant used it for a little uh motivation <laughs> to us and everything just a, just a slight bit you know and this but, thing uh, and this thing was the coin flip for i guess for security reasons they didn't want to have it on the field so yes, you, so you uh, actually went, we went into the stand, the stand uh, uh, the captain from Oklahoma and I went in the stands, and uh, I got to call the coin toss, and I won the coin toss, and still got the silver dollar that uh, President Kennedy uh, gave me. How about that? Was it heads or tails, Leroy? Well, uh, I, I normally always call uh, tails. <laughs> All right, I'm a tails guy myself, so yeah. I, so I support that decision. Now, you you had 31 tackles in that game. You were. 
you were tackling everything that moved. Well, it, it, my teammates helped me a lot to uh, get those tackled because they were they were taking on some blockers up front and uh, you know giving me an opportunity to to you know make make tackles and I was very fortunate to to make 31 tackles and you know like you say it's a large number but you know we probably uh, they, Oklahoma probably ran the ball 60 five times that game or something like that and uh so that was quite a few tackles so you you finish off a tremendous college career extremely successful college career and you're drafted with the sixth overall pick in the 1963 nfl draft by the cowboys uh who of course were a new team at that time had only been in the league for about three years but you were also drafted by the Boston Patriots in, in the AFL. Yes. Was that a difficult decision for you there in terms of which direction you wanted to go? Because, you know, that was a time when you had two different leagues that you could uh, choose between. Well, I, my uh, decision was made pretty quickly because uh, I kind of wanted to be in the NFL because that was the older league and uh, the more dominant league in for the reason, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to go to Boston, and I didn't think a South Alabama boy would fare too well in the wintertime up there in Boston. <laughs> That's probably a wise decision. <laughs> yeah. That, it was a lot warmer weather down here in uh, uh, Dallas, Texas. So the coach of the Cowboys, of course, from their inception on through the late 1980s was Tom Landry, of course. How instrumental was Tom Landry in putting together the Cowboys dynasty? Because from the time, really, your second or third year in the league on through, on through really the mid to late 80s, the Dallas Cowboys were just perennial winners. What kind of a mindset and what kind of leadership did Tom Landry bring to the organization? He was a great leader and a great uh, judge of uh, talent, uh, along with Gil Brandt, uh, you know, uh, they they started the computerizing uh, information on uh, guys and uh, that they would pursue in the uh, for the NFL, and went out and got a lot of guys in small schools and and brought them in as free agents, and you know, a lot of them went on to be stars for us here in Dallas. And so they they were a great group to through and through and coach uh, Landry was sure bright about the the guys he drafted and and the way he used us uh, once he drafted us uh, for the team now they made you captain pretty early in your career right what what year did you did you become the captain I think it was about my third year or so okay uh, so not very long at uh, all uh, you know I uh, I had great experience you know with coaches like tom landry and coach bryant uh you know i got some great experience early on and uh i I was kind of a i think a natural leader because i uh led by example i I always put my best efforts uh forward on every play on whether it was practice or game i was going full speed and coach bryant uh you know kind of taught me that that way of playing. Can you talk a little bit about the 
the mental side of the game, particularly at the highest level, because obviously, for the most part, people are pretty physically gifted to be able to, to make an NFL roster, uh, at least relatively speaking. They've got something going for them physically most of the time. But the guys who put in the time and studied the game, I mean, as I understand it, it was actually in your contract to have a film projector that you could use at your house in order to yeah, stay I, uh, prepared. I kind of negotiated uh, that with uh, Mr. Schramm because uh, I was having to carry a projector and 16-millimeter film home every night, and that was a pretty good load every night to carry in and out uh, of your house and, and bring it back in the car the next day. And so it was, you had it uh, where you could use it uh, at the meetings in, in, uh, in the facility over there. Uh, so, yeah, I negotiated that, and so I didn't have to take those films. And uh, uh, Well, I kept carrying the films, but I uh, didn't have to carry that big old heavy projector anymore. But that has to be a huge part of the reason for your success, though, the fact that, I mean, not only were you not cutting any corners in your preparation, you were going above and beyond probably what the average guy was doing. I was. I was studying those films for three or four hours at night, every night, and uh, watching them so in the quiet of my home where uh, uh, I could see little position uh, variances with the uh, linemen and halfbacks and receivers, and, you know, it, it tipped me off to, you know, where they would give me a tip before the play actually was run, and... I studied so well that, that I called a lot of plays for my guys on the defensive line, uh, draws and screens and runs here and run right and run left. And I, I picked a lot of that up from the, the uh, watching the films of uh, guys in their alignment. So let's talk about 1966 because that was the year where you know, rubber met the road for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, the first few years there that you were in the the league, the team was still growing and into what it was going to become. But in '66, you guys went ten three and one and made it uh, all the way to the championship game there in the NFL and and lost to the Packers thirty four to twenty seven at the Cotton Bowl. What are your memories of uh, that season? and the big leap forward that you guys took in terms of really kind of announcing your presence that the Dallas Cowboys are, are here and we're, and we're going to be here for a long time. Well, I think that was a big part of it there and uh, the playing in the NFL championship game, uh, NFC, back then and uh, playing uh, a great team that went on to uh, win the Super Bowl that year, uh, Super Bowl won, the Green Bay Packers won it that year, and we we had a chance to score and tie the game up at, uh, in the last few minutes, and we just, uh, I think we had an interception or uh, something late in the game that uh, kept us, we were on the six or eight yard line, and we throw in for the end zone and had it intercepted, I think, and uh, and so that, it was a great uh you know, statement for our team to make and being the 
uh, NFC Championship game, and uh, then Green Bay went on and won the Super Bowl one, and then we come around and come back the next year and play the uh, unforgettable uh, game up there in the Ice Bowl uh, that is known now, and uh, uh, it's been shown, I think, more than any uh, any game on television. It's probably, I would think, as, as I was kind of going through my notes here, getting ready to talk to you, I... I would have to characterize that probably as the most famous game in the history of professional football. And if it's not, it's you can count the ones that are ahead of it on one hand. Uh, that, that 50 years ago now, and you in your book, I thought, described it very interestingly and probably uh, probably right on point when you said that it was, as much as anything, it was two teams that were trying to survive. Minus 15 degrees... Uh, Fahrenheit. The wind chill was minus 48, and I know that they've changed the way they calculate wind chill now, so they say that by the way that they calculate it today, it was only minus 36, but minus 36, you know, wind chill, okay, that's, that's plenty cold. What's it like trying to go out and concentrate and think and perform physically in that kind of weather because I know what it's like just walking from the parking lot into the stadium on a cold day here in Chicago, uh, a day that's not even as cold as that one where you just put your head down and your snot's running out of your nose and you just want to get in the stadium. What's it like to be asked to, to be mentally alert and perform when it's so cold that you can hardly function? Well, it is uh, very tough, and uh, and it didn't bring the best out in our football team because we didn't get to use the speed of Bob Hayes and Don Meredith that uh, that we'd been used to that whole year. And uh, uh, Bob was so frozen that uh, he's being a South Florida young man. Uh, he he was so cold he couldn't take his hands out of his pants. So. <laughs> So he he ran around most of the time with his hand down in his pants, trying to keep the the hands warm, you know. So uh, we didn't show the best of our uh, uh, talent that day, particularly because of. And the and I first thing that happened was a referee pulled the put his whistle in his mouth and his, it closed to his mouth and he pulled the whistle out and it tore his lips off and oh my gosh uh, he bled for uh, uh two or three hours you know just bleeding oh bleeding just tore his lips off and, wow and that uh, that changed uh, the whistles they use they went the plastic after that so so the plastic wouldn't freeze to uh the lips of the skin you know wow now you really uh, you really believe that you guys had a had a tremendous team. I mean, both of those years, a break here and a break there, and it could have it could have very easily been the Cowboys that were in one or both of those first two Super Bowls. Yeah, uh, we uh, we were certainly uh, had the ch- chance to win uh, both of those games, and the one the last drive on that we went ahead uh, seventeen to fourteen. Uh, after Green Bay uh, got off to a good start and went up 14 points, and but we uh, trapped uh, Bart Starr seven or eight times uh, in the game and uh, created two or three fumbles and we scored a 
uh, a touchdown on defense with a with George Andre picked up a Bark Star fumble and ran it in the end zone. So we uh, we had our chances and uh, on the last drive the field was uh, like a uh, frozen rink, uh, a, a hockey rink or something, you know. And we had on cleats and trying to stand up and we we slipped and fell uh, in about six occasions on that drive and it let them get down to the end zone and uh, Bart Starr made that famous quarterback sneak for about two inches, you know. And when they say the frozen tundra of Green Bay, I mean, you got it full force, it double barrel. frozen, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, looked, I looked over at Coach Landry, and he had icicles hanging out of his nose that were three inches long. He <laughs> he was so enthralled in the game, and he didn't take time to wipe his nose. And he was so committed to the game. Should that game have been played in those conditions? And I don't mean that. I, I don't you know, think so. Yeah. I don't think it should have been. Uh, I think the commissioner was out on the West Coast watching the AFC uh, playoff game, uh, San Francisco or L.A. or somewhere out there. So I think he was in comfortable himself and wasn't, wasn't analyzing what was going on in Green Bay. You mentioned Don Meredith, who... One of my favorites. When I was a kid growing up, Monday Night Football and yes. Dandy Don, and you know what a what a colorful, humorous guy he was. But I think sometimes people maybe forget just what a heck of a quarterback Don yeah, Mer- Don was, Meredith really was. He and uh, Bob Hayes kind of changed football the way it was played back then because it was primarily a man-to-man defensive coverage and. They changed it to a zone coverage, trying to get two or three people to get slow down Bob Hayes and Don Meredith, and uh, uh, I, 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 it changed it, the game totally. And Don was uh, and Bob Hayes uh, set some records on long distance touchdowns. They, they threw a, and completed a lot of them. They were sixty to eighty yards and so forth like that. Now, not only were you Don Meredith's teammate, but you were actually Don Meredith's roommate. And you, yes. And you and Don not necessarily cut from the same cloth in terms of uh, enjoying the nightlife and those kinds of things. What was it like being Don's roommate <laughs> and seeing uh, you know all the, I'm sure, interesting things that uh, Don found his way into? Well, it, it, it was an interesting deal for young boy from South Alabama, uh, Coach Landry asked me to room with Don to try to get him in curfew on time and uh, uh, to babysit Don is really what it was. And so uh, I said, if you think, Coach, it'll make a difference, I'll sure do it. And so I only lost him one time in six, uh, six years. Uh, so that's a world record getting Don to, to be on time. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I'll guarantee you he loved to party. And I lost him one time in New York, and that was, uh, uh, we already had our Division One, and that was in 76 or 7 or something like that. We already had it won, and uh, we came out of the dinner, and we were getting ready to go, and we were going to be on time, and everything was great. And we ran into some of the owners and uh, some of the branded stewardesses out there, and they wanted Don to come entertain the girls a while, and so 
I couldn't peel him away after that. He uh, got uh, so excited about uh, showing off of the girls and everything. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I lost him that night, and uh, he, he got a little uh, inebriated and uh, uh, didn't play well the next day. And he only played, uh, I think, 10 minutes or something like that. And he threw seven passes, and three of them were intercepted, and uh, he lost the passing title. Uh, because of that deal and somebody said uh, told him that on the way home on the plane home and he said i had more fun last night than i could have with the passing title anywhere (laughs) (laughs) well leroy i say forget forget the ring of honor keeping don meredith on curfew all but one time for six years i mean yeah i think that i think that's the achievement right there that is a monumental achievement right there, I'll tell you. I was, I was uh, he respected me, and so I could coax him into, you know, doing, uh, you know, getting getting in uh, on time and everything. So we didn't miss one, but that one time in uh, six years. Now, the beating that quarterbacks take we, we we all know very well and a lot's been done in recent years to try and protect the quarterback and some people might argue that it's that it that it's gone a little bit too far maybe in some ways as far as penalties being called on plays where perhaps it's questionable if uh if there should be one but back in your day i mean you look at the nfl films footage and you see guys getting knocked around thrown around and and oftentimes there's no penalty at all and i look at the nfl in that era i mean dick buckus ray nitsky yourself tommy nobus the fearsome foursome the purple people eaters i mean (laughs) there's some tough cats out there playing defense in the nfl at that time what what kind of physical toll did did it take to go through an nfl season especially in those days if you were uh if you were a quarterback or a running back or somebody you know that was taking a lot of licks yeah yeah well don got beat up uh pretty bad he he had played with uh he broke ribs three ribs on uh the left side i think and uh uh he Came out and got taped up and went back in and kept playing and played the rest of the season with broken ribs. And he uh, did that with a broken nose. And, you know, he, he was a tough son of a gun, too, uh, besides being clever and funny and uh, uh, being a really, really great athlete and uh, everything. He, he was a real entertainer. So... Super Bowl five, you guys get over the get over the hump and and make it into the Super Bowl there and Super Bowl five, which in in a lot of ways was just a weird Super Bowl. Uh, you yes, know, for, for one thing, you guys forced seven turnovers against Baltimore. And Baltimore still won the game. Now, if you uh, you can play a game a thousand times probably, and if one team turns the ball over seven times, they're they're probably going to lose nine hundred and ninety nine yeah. of them. How yeah. how frustrating was that? And what are your memories of, of that game? Because I know from reading the book yeah. and from things that have been said, you you really felt like you guys should have should have beaten the Colts. Yeah, I think we should have. And. Uh... You know, we uh, we gave up a 
an interception, a tip ball right at the last uh, drive. We were on offense, and we uh, gave up the interception to set up the field goal to uh, for, to win the game for Baltimore. And uh, one of those deals, we uh, we tackled uh, Johnny Unitas a, a little hard in the game, and uh, uh, when he was running uh, uh, one of his uh, running plays, and uh, he. We heard him, and he went out of the game, and uh, uh, his uh, replacement played <laughs> better than uh, Johnny had with that game. And But uh, it was an unbelievable uh, game and a tough, tough situation for us to be in. So, Leroy, at this point, you, you're, you're a veteran in the league by now. You've, you've been to the, the NFL championship game twice before the merger and came up just short, you know, so close against Green Bay a couple of times. Then you yeah. then you get to the Super Bowl, and it, it kind of a fluky sort of Super Bowl, and it goes against you guys. Going into that offseason, heading into the, to the next year, uh, what were your thoughts on where the Dallas Cowboys stood, and, and what was it going to take for you guys to get over the hump? Well, we... Uh... We, we started the next year. Uh, we worked all off season hard on our conditioning and everything, but uh, we had some, you know, little flaws there. Almost the first uh, part of the season, the first four or five games, we were uh, three and four or something like that. And but uh, we got we called a meeting. I, I called a meeting with the team and. Uh, and players only and we talked about it and we uh everybody discussed what we thought we needed to do to get going on uh, the practice field and get going in the games and we just committed ourselves that we were going to get back to that super bowl and win it this time and we did that we started and won 10 in a row including the super bowl six uh the uh, that year so and and rolled over rolled over Miami. I mean, uh, no problem. Yes, in Super Bowl we, six. We were, we were playing really good at that time. And you had a pretty good quarterback. Uh, oh as, yeah. As I as I remember, Roger Staubach, yeah. uh, you know, was obviously playing at a very high level for you guys. And and Roger, I, and I don't know if this is because Coach Landry wanted to take some mercy on you after your heroic service with. With Dandy Don, but uh, but Roger was your roommate as well. Later on, yeah, yeah, I didn't have a problem uh, getting uh, Roger in curfew on time. <laughs> <laughs> he he was he was as committed as I was. So uh, Super Bowl victory there, and obviously that's the that's the the brass ring that it, that everybody's after in the NFL, and it also puts you in a in a pretty uh, select company as as a player that won a national championship at the college level and, and then won a championship in the NFL as well. How, how much did that mean to you to, to know that you'd been to the, the top of the line there, both as a college player and as a professional? It's real important to me. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, I think, uh, shows a characteristic of what I'm all about and my leadership and, uh, you know that's uh, that's what I I'm so excited about that I was able to be a part of a 
team in college to win the national championship. And you were talking about my uh, senior year there. We had a pretty good year that year with Joe Namath at quarterback, and uh, we lost one game by one point, or we'd have had back-to-back championships there. So <laughs> we uh, we were pretty good in six and two as well as we were in six and one. So. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you, and I didn't even know about this until I was doing my research, but Kenny Anderson, my listeners are going to know, Kenny Anderson was a heck of a heck of a quarterback. Uh, I think he led the uh, league in passer rating several times during his career, two or three yeah. times anyway, and was a terrific player, uh, really a terrific quarterback, and you intercepted him on November the 4th, 1973 at uh, Texas Stadium there, I believe. You intercepted him three times in the first quarter. Now, how in the world did you manage that? Well, I've just been in the right place at the right time, and uh, uh, being able to catch the ball, too. (laughs) That's the hard part sometimes. One of them was a tip ball, I think, and uh, so I got a little lucky with that part of it. But but I got the three interceptions within that quarter and won one of them back for a touchdown. Very very fortunate with my teammates getting some blocks uh, for me uh, to to do that. Now, do you ever see Kenny and remind him about that day? No, uh, I think we were at the Pro Bowl one time, and we kind of uh, I kind of. Told him he was he was awful nice to me one one time in a in a game and I knew he didn't mean to be that nice to me. So. Well, I'm quite sure that Ken Anderson has never forgotten that. Wherever Kenny is right yeah. now, uh, he might not want to talk about it quite as much as you do, but I'm yeah. sure he remembers it. I, you know, one thing I want to ask you is knowing what we know now uh, about some of the long-term physical effects that some of the guys that you played with and against have have suffered through the through the years and uh, having an understanding of the effects of the brutality because let's face it it's a it's a beautiful game but it's also a very uh, brutal game that's just the nature of football during your playing days uh, were, were there ever any situations where you saw injuries or, or or you hit somebody and you just thought to yourself, oh, my gosh, you know, this isn't good. I might have really hurt this guy. Well, uh, yeah, uh, a couple of times, uh, you know, you it's things are unintentional and you can't help. You know, you're going full speed uh, in a collision with the opposing player and uh, I caught a young guy uh, at Georgia Tech. I caught him, my elbow caught him a little across the jaw and everything. And uh, so I, I broke his jaw and I really felt bad about that. And uh, so it was it was something that I, I had no intent of uh, harming him that way, but I, I wanted to hit him hard and do my my part as uh, as far as my blocking was concerned, but uh, I never wanted to injure. Like if, when you watch an NFL game today, with the changes that have happened in terms of the rules, opening up the passing game, and, and so forth. Um, what do you think about the ways in which the game has 
has changed uh, even just in the even just in the last ten or fifteen years, but but since you retired as well. Well, I think it's uh, they don't uh, work out enough to be as conditioned as we were in in our time, and I think that's the reason you see eight or ten injuries in every game you watch nowadays. It uh, seems like they're eight or ten timeouts for a person injured to be taken off the field, you know, and uh, I, I think it's just because the the union got so involved in it, they can't work and practice enough to, to get themselves in shape enough to play, uh, play hard all the time. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot too much here, but, but I want to ask you if, if I'm saying who are the, who are the three, four names that, that come to mind for you when I say the best offensive players that you played against? Who were, who are some of the guys that that you'd put near the top of the list? Well, uh, you know, Jim Brown was one of them. Uh, Jim Taylor was one of them. Uh, Gail Sayers, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, one of the, the top-rated guys I played against. And we played against some... Great offensive linemen, you know, that uh, the Green Bay and the, the Pittsburgh uh, offensive linemen, you know, were unbelievable. And uh, we we had some really tough uh, tough games with them, and we came up short, you know. Uh, we made them player the team of the century in the 70s and so forth like that by losing two Super Bowls to them. So, uh, but we... Uh, we competed really well with all of them, but uh, you know they they had some great offensive linemen. Did did much talking go on? I mean, what kinds of what kinds of things are said on the field? Because you know that, that are at least that are repeatable. <laughs> because you watch you watch yeah. on TV and you'll see uh, uh, offensive players and defensive players speak to each other sometimes after a tackle, that kind of thing. What what kind of what kind of talking went on? I mean, a, a guy like Jim Brown or Gail Sears or Jimmy yeah. Taylor did did those guys talk much during the game? No, no, they didn't. There wasn't much talking going on back then, and uh, everybody was respectful of the other players, and you didn't you didn't get into name calling matches and everything like uh, they seem to do today so much. And it's embarrassing to me that they disrespect each other so much uh, the way they do on the field. One thing I have to ask you before we go here, and I've only got a couple of questions left for you, Leroy, but one one thing I I really wanted to ask you about is you you got to meet Elvis. Now, Elvis, much like JFK, and and in the book also you talk about uh, how you got to meet and and eventually got to know uh, John Wayne as well. Now, these... Names like JFK and Elvis Presley and John Wayne, these are larger-than-life figures, you know. What what was it like meeting Elvis, and how did you manage to pull that off? Well, it was, uh, we went to see him in Las Vegas and uh, went to his show uh, the first night, and he was so good. We had such a great time. He's been my idol for a long time, and... Uh, so we went back a second night, and after it was over, he performed for three hours and plus without taking a break. And so I, I said, I'm going to go back and see if I can say hello to him. And so I went back and 
told the security guard who I was with the Dallas Cowboys in Alabama, and uh, he said, oh, my God, uh, here, let me take you in to see Elvis. And so he took me in to meet Elvis, and we visited for 45 minutes and just had a great, great visit. He loved Coach Bryant and uh, admired Coach Bryant for his commitment and his excelling as a coach. And uh, so (laughs) we had a great time, and my wife still gets mad at me because I didn't come back and get my wife and the other couple with us, Dan Reeves and his wife, and bring them back to meet Elvis. I had (laughs) been so involved in my my enthralling uh, visit with him, uh, I didn't worry about anybody else. I've I've, uh, listened to it for the last 50-some-odd years uh, that we've been married. (laughs) Oh, that is too funny. That's too funny. Well, you know, I I wanted to ask you about the Hall of Fame because I'm going to tell you, when... Uh, when I talked to one of your representatives and they asked me if I would be interested in having you on the podcast, I'm going to tell you, I actually thought you were in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I was surprised to find out that that you weren't. Uh, I know a lot of people believe that you should be in the Hall of Fame. Roger Staubach uh, actually talks about it a little bit in your book. How do you feel about the Hall of Fame? Is that, a, is that an aspiration that you, that you still hold? Well, no, it's uh, it's something that I, you know, kind of hope for, but I think it's uh, bypassed me now. Uh, uh, in unless I get the you know picked out of the seniors deal, and that's gone on for years now, so I don't think that will happen. And but I'm in the Ring of Honor, and that's my Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm up in the Cowboy Stadium between. Tom Landry and Roger Staubach, and nobody could ever be in a more uh, promising place and a more uh, highlighted place uh, in, in their life than being up there between Roger and Coach Landry. Well, that's very well said. I, I had the pleasure of taking a tour of the of the new stadium there a couple of years ago when I saw your name up in the ring of honor. It's a Obviously, being a, a legendary player for the Dallas Cowboys is uh, pretty good stuff. Well, I just want to mention uh, uh, I've got uh, a book coming out, and I've got chapters in it and uh, uh, by Roger Staubach, Joe Namath, Gene Stallings, uh, Randy White, Dan Reeves. Uh, so I've got 24 segments of, uh, uh, in the book that uh, is really is, a highlight of the book for me because it's uh, teammates and coaches talking about their relationship with me as we went on to win these championships. I want everyone to know that the proceeds from this book that I have written are going to an academic scholarship at the University of Alabama here at the local Dallas chapter in uh, the Bryant Museum uh, is going to receive all the proceeds that come from me. Absolutely. The book is called Leroy, My Story of Faith, Family, and Football. 
and it really is just a terrific read. Joe Namath wrote the foreword for this, and as you said, uh, Roger Staubach and, and many other uh, big names uh, from your career uh, and that the fans are going to know uh, contributed to this book. And uh, Leroy, I, I got to tell you, I wish you all the success in the world with your book. And it's been a real honor to be able to talk to you today and have you on the podcast. Well, I thank you so much, and I uh, enjoyed visiting with you, and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime, okay? My thanks again to Leroy Jordan. The book is Leroy, My Story of Faith, Family, and Football. The foreword is by Joe Namath. Roger Staubach contributes, as well as a lot of other names that you're going to recognize I highly recommend it for my old school football fans out there. A lot of good stories in this one. My guest next week is the only 20-game winner in the history of the Montreal Expos. So tune in next week when former Major League All-Star left-hander Ross Grimsley joins me on the podcast for what promises to be a fun conversation of 1970s baseball. So until then... This is Ricky Cobb wishing you all the best in the upcoming new year and reminding you to, of course, never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. <laughs>